Amen and amen. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Mark. If you would, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we're planning on working our way through the book of Acts, the book of Daniel, the book of 1 Corinthians, and the book of Revelation um, concurrently uh, to address the question, how do we live to please the Lord in a country, a culture, a world that seems to be increasingly hostile to Christianity and increasingly challenging to live as Christians. And so today we want to look at 1 Corinthians in in light of that. Now the bottom line is that God calls us every day in every situation, every relationship to trust him and to love people. And so every time we come to the word of God, the question we want to ask is, how does this call, call me to trust God, and how does this call me to love people, and how does it teach me to do that? And so hopefully, as we go through this, we'll see what that means for us in light of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Back in um, 1858, Abraham Lincoln gave a speech called uh, A House Divided, and it was based on verses like we find in the New Testament that say, if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And that's obviously the Lord Jesus speaking. He's identifying the fact that um, every kind of division isn't good. Now, when he divided the loaves and he fed people with those loaves, that was a good division, so to speak. But there's a kind of division that is destructive, And that's what he's talking about when he says a house divided or a kingdom divided uh, will not stand. That's just a principle. And the reality is in our country, we see increasing division in various ways. And so what we want to look at is that very dynamic in our own lives and in our country in light of the fact that 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is very much about the issue of division, especially in division Uh, excuse me, division in the church. And so we want to talk about when the party spirit is not innocent fun. Now, there are birthday parties that are fun. But when we talk about other kinds of parties, when we think of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, uh, those two parties aren't necessarily having fun together. They're at odds with each other. And so there's a kind of party spirit that is not something that is going to be a good thing. It's going to be a destructive thing. And that's exactly the thing that Paul is talking about in this chapter. And so I want to make four points in light of what Paul says. Number one, God through Paul. And I emphasize that because whenever we read the Bible, God led men to write what they wrote. But it is God whose heart is being communicated. And we need to always keep that in mind. So God through Paul, first of all, rejoices over a messy church. Then he reproves a divided church, reproves a worldly church, and reproves a proud church. And hopefully as we read this together today, uh, you can see um, where I get those points. But let me just give you a a word of application even before we begin. Um, When you look at people, let's say when you walk into church or when you walk into a grocery store, uh, wherever you may go, when you look at people... What is the first thing that you notice about them? Do you notice how different they are from you? Or do you notice how much alike you are? 
Now, we may never think about it in exactly those terms, but that is the real issue in so many ways when we think about the issue of unity. It's how do I look at other people? Do I highlight and magnify the differences between us, or do I focus on the things that unify us? And that's what Paul is going to be arguing for in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So let's begin by reading this chapter. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 says, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you are called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I want, excuse me, now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased to the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, 
you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Father, we ask that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, just a little bit of background on the um, church in Corinth, uh, the city of Corinth. It's, it's very, very interesting. If you read Acts chapter 18, you find out in Acts chapter 18 that Paul went to Corinth and he established a church there, which is obviously the church he's writing to here. The first time he went, he spent 18 months preaching and teaching. Then he moved on to Ephesus for about three years. He wrote one letter uh, before he wrote this letter. So this is actually the second letter he wrote to the Corinthians. After writing that first letter and spending more time in Ephesus, he heard about divisions in the church. And he also received a letter from the Corinthians about certain questions that they had, practical questions that they had. And so if you look at the way the, the book of Corinthians is laid out, the first six chapters is uh, Paul addressing the issue of divisions in the church and uh, encouraging them to fight that divisiveness as he has heard about it and as he sees it. The next chapter, 7 through the end of the book, talk about the various questions that they wrote to him asking him for some counsel on. Well, so he wrote this letter to them, and then evidently he went to see them for a short visit. Then he wrote a third letter that was called the Severe Letter in 2 Corinthians. And then he wrote the book of 2 Corinthians, which was actually the fourth letter that he wrote to Corinth. And then he went and saw them for a third time. If you think about all that, really that says, uh, if you read through these two letters that have been preserved for us, you realize that Paul's relationship where the church at Corinth was very turbulent. It wasn't an easy relationship. And if you just look at the different things that he address, addresses in First and Second Corinthians, a big issue was they challenged his authority. And so there were all kinds of things going on. And there's no doubt that they were, to some degree, a product of the city that they were in. Uh, there was an air that they breathed. And it's always important that we realize that we're a, we're a product to some degree of the air that we breathe, the family that we were brought up in, the culture that we're raised in. We are shaped and molded in various ways. Uh, Corinth was a Greek city in Greece, but it was a Roman colony, a very large, very wealthy city. Um, it was kind of like New York in the sense that it was an international trading city, kind of like L.A. and that it was uh, a tourist hotspot and entertainment center of sorts. Um, it was like Las Vegas, which is known as Sin City. It was a very immoral city. Uh, in fact, um, there was a phrase that they used at the time, evidently, uh, when they would say t um, that guy is Corinthianizing. It meant that he was giving himself to gross immorality and drunken debauchery. So to act like a Corinthian was to be immoral and to just live your life in a lawless kind of way, in an indulgent kind of way. A very, it was a very independent spirit. Everybody was 
out for their own self-promotion, trying to make a buck, uh, trying to enjoy life. And that is the air that this church breathed. And that's what they came out of uh, as God saved them. And so Paul is writing uh, to a church in a non-Judeo-Christian context. This isn't a uh, context in which uh, the people's values have been shaped by uh, Judeo-Christian values like we have over the years in this country. It was, it was very, very different. And so as a result, the first thing that we want to talk about is that Paul ta- starts out in the first nine verses actually rejoicing. You would think, if you read the whole book, you would think that he would not say anything positive about this church, that he would not start off by rejoicing over this church. That's about what he does in Galatians, because Galatians, that church is walking away from Christ, and he has he doesn't rejoice over them. He says, I'm mystified at what's going on in your midst. That's the way he talks to the Galatian churches. But here in Corinth, he doesn't start off that way. He says in verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. Now, he starts off in verse 2. He says, you've been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Notice he doesn't say saints by character. He says saints by calling. When we think of a saint, we think of somebody that's perfect, that does everything right, that must be you know, about as close to Jesus as you can get. But that's not how the word saint is used in the New Testament. It means someone who's been set apart. It means someone who's been set apart for God. Doesn't mean you're perfect. Doesn't mean you've got everything cleaned up. Doesn't mean you're everything you should be. But it does mean something truly, fundamentally, life-changing has happened. You've been set apart by God for God. That's what a saint is. And so he rejoices over them. He uh, says he thanks God for the grace that he sees. There's evidences of grace in their midst. In the midst of everything else that's going on, there's still evidences of grace. He says, you've been enriched in him. The testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. You're not lacking in any gift. God is going to confirm you to the end, blameless in Christ. God is faithful. He's going to complete what he's begun. And that's where Paul starts. Do we often start there? With people, we have um, some really difficult issues to deal with. Do we start with, I am so thankful about these things for that are a part of your life. Let me just highlight some of the things that we're going to talk about in this book. In chapter 1, he, he highlights the issue that they had, of, and these are negative issues, celebrity worship. Chapter 2, attraction to worldly performance. Chapter 3, immature believers that are act, acting immaturely. Uh, chapter 4 and chapter 9, arrogant criticism of Paul. Chapter 5, incest in the body. Chapter 6, suing one another in court. Chapter 6, prostitution. Abstinence in marriage in chapter 7. Not abstinence outside of marriage, abstinence inside of marriage. Uh, Divorce in chapter 7. Participation in idol worship, chapter 8 and chapter 10. 
feminism in chapter 11, abuse of the Lord's Supper in chapter 11, abuse of spiritual gifts, 12 through 14, and denial of the resurrection of the dead in chapter 15. Anybody want to sign up for that, uh, for their membership class? Think about that. Um, Paul doesn't say, you guys need to find another church. He says, I want to thank God for the grace that I see in this body. And now let's move on to talk about the things we need to deal with. That's what he does. And that's what we need to keep in mind. J.I. Packer said, the church is a hospital in which nobody is completely well and anyone can relapse at any time. That's the reality of our spiritual condition. When I use the word messy, when I say messy church, what I mean by that is there are imperfections and sin and failure that are not hard to find and can be even very surprising. Messy churches. There's a book by uh, Timothy Lane and Paul David Tripp entitled Relationships, A Mess Worth Making, in which they say these things. What is a relationship? The intersection of the stories of two people. The problem is that an awful lot of carnage takes place at this intersection. It's kind of like two cars running into each other at an intersection. They go on to say, none of us ever gets to be in relationship with a finished person. God's redemptive work of change is ongoing in all of our lives. Now, we expect people to be finished, but nobody's finished. They also say the fact that our relationships work as well as they do is a sure sign of grace. Okay? It just highlights again what Paul is saying. I see evidences of grace among you. You're definitely not everything you ought to be and will be one day, but you're not what you once were either. There are evidences of grace. There's still a marvelous contrast between what you are and what the world is. It's still amazing. Um... John Calvin comments on this passage, and he says something that I think is really, really important. He says, Notwithstanding that many vices had crept in and various corruptions, both of doctrine and manners, there were, nevertheless, certain tokens still remaining of a true church. He says, This is a passage that ought to be carefully observed, which means we really need to think about this passage in light of what Paul is saying. He says, We need to think about it carefully because... We don't want to require that the church, while in this world, should be free from every wrinkle and stain or forthwith pronounce unworthy of such a title every society in which everything is not as we would wish it. So he's saying, look around your church and be careful of identifying all the things that you don't like and all the things that you wish were different and don't come to the conclusion that this must not be a true church. Or even that this must not be a good place to be. Because he goes on to say that the real evidences of a true church are the doctrine of the gospel, baptism, and the Lord's Supper properly exercised. Which means there can be a lot of stuff wrong that need still needs to be worked on. But if there are some very basic fundamentals, it's still a church. It's still something that God rejoices over and loves dearly and says, I died for that body of believers right there. I love them dearly and calls us to reflect that same love to each other. 
Um, there's a, an analogy that's used about um, salvation. Um, the Bible talks about salvation in terms of its past tense, its present tense, and its future tense. And you can imagine someone who's out in the water and they're drowning and a lifeboat goes out and pulls them out of the water. So in that sense, they've been saved. And yet they're still on their way back to shore. So in that sense, they're being saved. But they still look forward to being on the shore. And it's not until they're on the shore that they have been completely saved. So that there are different aspects of our salvation And so often we expect people to be on the shore when they're still moving toward the shore. And the way that um, John Newton talks about it is, he talks about it in terms of the dawn. I've shared this before. He says, think about when you get up in the morning, you're having your coffee and you're watching the sunrise. And he talks about the fact that if the only light we were to get that day were to be just the first few rays of the dawn, we would be probably in a complaining mode. Wow, I wish it was brighter. How am I going to do what I need to do? And we would be very unsatisfied with the dawn. He says one of the things that really causes us to fall in love with the dawn is to know that it's on its way somewhere. It's going to get brighter and brighter and brighter. And so he talks about the fact that we as the church are at the dawn of immortality. Our Christian lives and what we're going to be is just dawning. It's just the first rays of sunlight. There's still a lot of darkness that still hasn't been overcome. And if we only focus on how much of the darkness hasn't been overcome, we can be full of complaining and very dissatisfied with the dawning of the church that we're in. And therefore, we have to look beyond that to the fact that God is at work. God is faithful to complete the good work that he's begun in us. And so it's very, very important for us to begin there, to realize that that's the foundation on which Paul is moving toward very quickly addressing the issues in this church. He's not calling into question their salvation. He's not telling them to disband and and go someplace else. He's affirming the love of God for them while at the same time reproving them, saying there are some serious issues here that we need to talk about. And the first one he highlights is in verses 10 through 16 where he reproves them for their division. He says in verse 10, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you. And he goes on to talk about the fact that he got a report. People from Chloe's uh, household, evidently, Chloe may have been a a member of the church at Corinth that had gone to Ephesus for various reasons and reported to him what was going on. And evidently, it says that there there were cliques or there were groups in the church, some of which said, I'm of Paul or I'm of Apollos. Apollos was somebody you can find out about if you read in the book of Acts, who was a great preacher, great orator, much more polished in his preaching uh, than uh, Paul. Uh, you got, of course, Cephas, which is another name for Peter, who was the head of the, the disciples, of the apostles, the 12. And then you got another group who said, no, I'm not 
a part of any of these other guys. I'm of Christ. You might think of them in terms of um, you got the founding pastor party, which is Paul. You've got the dynamic celebrity pastor party, which is Apollos. You've got the maybe fundamentalist party pastor, which is Peter. And then you've got the I'm tired of all of you party, the party of Christ. I'm not a part of any of you party people. I'm going to follow Jesus. The implication is even that party wasn't really honoring Christ, even though they took on the name of Christ. Why? Because they had a party spirit too. They thought they were more spiritual. You know, we know that we need to worship Christ and I can't believe you guys are so off base. And so he's encouraging them to really think about this, to be divided uh, as a church is the idea that there was a party spirit that was strong in this church resulting in cliques and power struggles and criticisms between groups within the church. Now what's really interesting is if you read through the first 10 verses, Jesus has mentioned every single verse, one way or the other. 10 verses, 10 references to Jesus. Why? Why is that? Because that's the real source of unity. It is our love and faith in Jesus. It's not Paul or Peter or anybody else. We are unified as we worship and honor and love and trust and serve Jesus. That's where our real unity comes from. And so Paul starts out by just over and over and over again making mention of Jesus, saying, you guys are divided because you are worshiping something other than Jesus. The real source of unity has been forgotten. Um, Again, John Newton um, was giving some counsel to a Christian who was upset with another believer who had some theological views that they didn't agree with. And he was getting ready to just write him this scathing letter. And John Newton says, um, let me just uh, give you some encouragement before you write that scathing letter to this person you disagree with. He said, as to your opponent, I wish that before you set pen to paper against him and during the whole time you're preparing your answer, you may commend him by earnest prayer to the Lord's teaching and blessing. He says, begin by praying for this person like you would pray for yourself. To pray, to pray is to desire and to lift your desires to the Lord. What do you really desire for this person? What is your heart for this person? Is it just to blow them out of the water? Or is it to love them? Is your heart that they would see Jesus and know Jesus better? He says, this practice will have a direct tendency to conciliate your heart, to love and pity him. And such a disposition will have a good influence upon every page you write. He goes on to say, if he is a believer... And evidently, this person is probably doubting this guy's salvation because he differs from him in his doctrine. It says, if he is a believer, in a little while you will meet in heaven. He will then be dearer to you than the nearest friend you have upon earth is to you now. Anticipate that period in your thoughts. Think about that. All those who are believers may not be as close as we could be uh, in this life. And we might think of some people as in the church that we wouldn't even want to be close with. But he says, you know what? In heaven, you'll be closer to them than any person you were ever close to on this earth. 
You will love them like you've never loved them before. Seek to relate to them on the, the basis of what is true, not on the basis of how things feel and appear. Then he says, if he is an unconverted person, he has a more proper, excuse me, he is a more proper object of your compassion than your anger. Alas, he knows not what he does, but you know who has made you to differ. What does he mean? God has made you to differ. God is the one who has saved you. So why are you so angry at this person who isn't a believer? When that, that was you. And that would still be you if it weren't for God's sovereign grace. And so um, what Paul does here is he highlights the fact that they've been divided. There's been a schism. And the word for division there is like the ripping apart of a fishing net. But he says, I want you to be made complete, which is the idea of mending that net back together. And he highlights the fact that it's the Lord Jesus that provides the glue that holds us together. We're not going to stay together if we're simply trying to be united on the basis of agreeing on everything. The agreement that he wants them to have is their worship and love and trust and obedience to Jesus. He's not saying, I want you to agree on every doctrine. I want you to agree on every practice. That's not the agreement he's calling them to. He's calling them to agree to love and worship and serve and obey Jesus above all. He goes on to highlight a couple things that uh, would feed their division. He reproves their worldliness in verses 17 through 25. Uh, He talks about um, wisdom, the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God. And he says in verse 23, But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, what I mean by worldly is they valued what the world values and they evaluated success according to the world's standards. It's very easy to do that in the church. It's easy to do that in our relationships. Um, I mean, we can ask ourselves how important other people's opinions are. We can ask ourselves how important Facebook likes are. Um, There's all kinds of things that help us to see how much we're wanting the world's um, approval. And that was certainly the way it was in Corinth. Interesting thing about what Paul is saying here in this section of of the first um, of this first chapter is that he highlights the fact that The Jews rejected the message of the cross and the Greeks or the Gentiles rejected the message of the cross. And the question is, why? Why was the preaching of salvation through Jesus who laid down his life on the cross something that the Jews saw as a stumbling block and the Gentiles called foolishness? Well, it's because the Jews looked for signs, he said, what, what were those signs supposed to do? Even in the mystery of Jesus, the Pharisees would say, show us a sign, show us a sh- sign. Well, the idea of the sign was, prove to us that you have God's approval. Prove to us that you're really approved by God. 
that you have God's stamp of approval on your life. For the Greeks, it says they look for wisdom. What was wisdom to a Greek person? It was whatever would make you successful. Uh, In Corinth, uh, people would come in and uh, there were people that would go around speaking. They were great persuasive speakers and they would help people learn how to be successful in life. Your best life now, whatever you might call it. And so the whole idea of wisdom for the Greeks was, how can I have my best life right now? How can I be successful? And so think about that. The idea of approval and the idea of success. And you preach a gospel of the cross. And what did the Jews think about the cross? Why was it a stumbling block to them? Because in their minds, to die on a cross was to be forsaken by God, to be cursed by God, not to have God's approval. It wasn't a sign that God approves of you. It was a sign that God rejects you. So therefore, the Jews would say, there's no way that the Messiah could be crucified because we know that the cross is a sign of God's disapproval, not his approval. The Greeks would look at it and they would say, you know what? We value a wisdom that leads to success in this world. And it's very clear that a person dying on the cross has not been successful. They looked at that and they said to die on a cross was something disgusting and abhorrent. And they would not even talk about it in common conversation uh, because they felt like it was impolite to talk about the cross. They would use euphemisms, just like we do when we're talking about other things that seem to be a little impolite to talk about in, um, in public. And so it wasn't something they talked about because for them, only the worst of criminals were crucified. Only terrorists were, were crucified. Only the, the least successful were crucified. And so for them, the cross spoke against God's approval or man's approval. It said God rejects this person and man rejects this person. End of story. So in that context, how could anybody become a Christian? How could any Jew become a Christian? How could any Gentile or Greek become a Christian? By a miracle of God. And that's what it takes for all of us to become Christians. It takes a miracle of God. One of the things that I'm just wanting to highlight is we need to realize that it's very easy for us to adopt values in our own lives that are simply the values of the world. And that fosters division in the church. It fosters um, division in our marriages, in our families, in our church, and in our nation. When we adopt the values of the world, then we begin operating on those values and we begin destroying relationships rather than building relationships. That's what happens. Um, There's another illustration in the life of John Newton where a, a missionary named Henry Martin was criticized for his preaching. And some people had said, you know, your preaching is 
insipid and inanimate, which means I wouldn't want to sit five minutes under your preaching. It's just so boring and so unedifying. So Henry Martin, who was a famous missionary, goes to John Newton and says, I'm really discouraged. I'm getting all this negative flack about my preaching, and I'm wondering what I should do with this this criticism. And um, John Newton told him, and uh, Henry Martin wrote this down in his uh, diary that he kept. John Newton said he had heard of a clever gardener who would sow seeds when the meat was put down to roast and engage to produce a salad by the time it was ready. But the Lord did not sow oaks in this way. So he said there was this guy who would put a, a roast in the crock pot and plant, you know, some um, some lettuce and hope that by the time his roast was done, his lettuce would be ready too. And he was basically arguing, you know what? That's not the way God works. God doesn't work that way. Do we expect certain people in our lives and certain groups we're a part of to be ready like that by the, by the end of the meal? By the end of the worship service, everybody ought to be straightened out and good. God doesn't build oaks like that. It takes years. It takes time for people to grow and change and become more like Christ. John Newton went on to say, uh, well, Henry Martin said, on my saying that perhaps I should never live to see much fruit, John Newton said, I should have the bird's eye view of it, which would be much better. What he was saying was, we can be so very narrowly focused that we miss the big picture. If you look at somebody's life and you only look at what they've been like over the last week, you might think, well, this person isn't growing at all. Or maybe if you looked at their life over the last 10 years or 20 years, you might say, wow, this person's come a long, long way. Look at, look at what God has done in this person or in this family, or in this church over this period of time. We need to have the bird's eye view of it. Uh, Henry Martin said, when I spoke about the opposition that I should be likely to meet with, John Newton said, he supposed Satan would not love me for what I was about to do. What does he mean by that? Anything that God is doing something in, you can expect opposition. You can expect it to be messy. You can expect it to be difficult. You can expect it to have problems and issues. So Paul looks at the church in Corinth and he doesn't think, wow, Jesus must not be there. No, he just realizes that this is a church that's in a battle. They're in an ungodly culture and Satan is at work to divide them and destroy them. And therefore, we need to be aware that Satan seeks to divide and conquer, and therefore we need to fight against that division. And so he reproves them for that kind of worldly thinking that is just the opposite of what John Newton was encouraging Henry Martin with. Well, fourthly, and these are the last verses, God, through Paul, reproves a proud church. In verse 26, he says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen. And he goes on to say several times, God chose, God chose, God chose. 
And why did God choose? So that no man may boast before God. So verse 29, he says, God has chosen, and he's chosen especially, not only, but he's chosen especially those who are not mighty, not noble, not wise in the world, not the intellectual giants, not those who are politically powerful, not those who have a lot of money, the Bill Gates of the world, per se. He hasn't chosen a lot of them. Doesn't mean he doesn't choose some of them. But he hasn't chosen a lot of them. A lot of those he has chosen to save are uh, the foolish and the weak and the base and the despised. And he's done that, he says in verse 29, so that no man may boast before God, but by his doing, you're in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It means if you ask the question, why am I a Christian and someone isn't? It's because of God. That's why you're a Christian. It's not because you're smarter or you're better or you're uh, somehow more humble. It's because of God. God gets all the glory for our repenting of our sin and our entrusting ourselves to Jesus because if you're a Jewish person, you don't entrust yourself to someone who you naturally believe has been disapproved of by God. And if you're a Greek who values success, you don't entrust yourself naturally to someone you believe is not approved by men. It takes a miracle of sovereign grace. It takes God regenerating our heart, raising us from the spiritually dead, and delivering us from our blindness for us to turn from our sin and embrace Jesus. So when I talk about pride, a proud church, if you go on to read what Paul says about them, you realize that this pride showed up in all kinds of ways in this church. They believed their wealth and their gifts were the result of their own efforts or their own wisdom, or that they were um, the reflection of what they rightly deserved. And they did not fully rest in the implications of the truth that they had been taught for 18 months. Um, Paul isn't telling them something new. He's reminding them that the only reason that you've been rescued is not because you're different than everybody else. It's because God has had mercy on you. Sovereign grace and mercy. It's like what um, Alex Haley, uh, he was the author of Roots, and I've told this story before, but I love this picture. Uh, He has had a picture on his wall of a turtle on a fence post. And he said, I keep that on my wall because every time I think I'm something and I've done something in my own strength and through my own effort and wisdom and power, and I look at that turtle sitting on top of the fence post and I realize there's no way that turtle got on that fence post by himself. Impossible. That's why Jesus could say, it is impossible for the rich to be saved. Does he mean rich people materially? No, he means rich people in pride. Because we're all naturally proud and we will not embrace a crucified Savior unless God picks us up and puts us on that fence post. And if we're a Christian, that's exactly what has happened. God has lifted us up by his sovereign grace and mercy. And that is meant to cause us to relate to each other um, differently. 
You know, if I look at people and I say, I'm different than you and it's because I'm better or because God favored me over you because of something in me, then I'm not going to be humble and gracious toward other people who are different from me. Again, John Newton would talk about this um, by using the illustration of um, how, what if Jesus healed blind Bartimaeus? And you recall the story that he tells. He said, what if um, Jesus healed blind Bartimaeus and he got, a, got his walking stick, a stick that he used to wander around blindly, and started beating every other blind person because they could not see? Would that make sense? Would that be consistent with understanding that the only reason I see is because of God's mercy and grace to me, his sovereign grace and mercy? Again, he uses the picture of a company of travelers that fall into a pit. Somebody reaches down and pulls one of them out of the pit. And then that person who's out of the pit looks down at the people in the pit and is angry at them for falling in and not getting out. Those illustrations are very convicting for me because that's where my heart grows, goes too often. I often forget that I only am where I am by the grace of God and I become very impatient with people around me who I deem as not being where they should be. And therefore, it's very easy to be divided because we become so ungracious because we've forgotten God's grace to us. And so what Paul is doing here all revolves around the issue of division and why we are divided. And I want to close with just um, highlighting some of the ways that we see that in the church today in our own country. Um, In Galatians 3.28, Paul says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now notice there, he's highlighting the fact that those are groups we could think in terms of. There's the Jewish group or the Greek group. There's the slave group and the free group. There's the male group and the female group. And he says, don't think like that. Don't see your identity as being Jew or being Greek or my identity as being a slave, or free, or my identity as being male or female, or any other group. He says, if you're a Christian, you're all one. You're all united in Jesus. And that is what unites you, is the person of Jesus himself. So let's think about this a little bit as we wrap up. How is the the church in America divided today? And not just today, but it's over the last number of years, I would say. One area is systematic theology. If I say I am of Calvin and someone else says I am of Arminius, is God pleased with that? I don't think so. John Duncan was a a Puritan pastor who said, Every unconverted Arminian is a Pelagian and every unconverted Calvinist is an antinomian. That statement highlights the fact that you can be an Arminian and not be saved. You can also be a Calvinist and not be saved. 
How could that be? Because you're not saved by doctrine. Paul is highlighting the fact that what unifies us is our trust in a person, not a proposition. And therefore, we are not to identify primarily according to Calvin or Arminius or anybody else. We are to be followers of Jesus. Because what happens practically is the Arminian looks at the Calvinist and doubts his salvation. The Calvinist looks at the Arminian and doubts their salvation. And there becomes division in the church. And that is exactly what Paul is arguing against. There's also the the arena of politics. Someone might say, I am of Trump. Somebody else might say, I am of anybody but Trump. Politics is one of those things where we divide in the Christian church. Uh, Someone has said, I don't know a single family that has not been divided over President Trump and politics generally. I don't know a single church that hasn't been divided over political issues. Paul would say, that's wrong. Brothers and sisters, that is wrong. If you identify with men in such a way or politics in such a way that causes you not to identify with true brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ and want to be apart from them, then you're doing exactly what the Corinthians are doing. We're doing exactly what the Corinthians are doing. He says that is wrong. Another thing that's divided us has been COVID. I am pro-vaccine mandate. I am anti-vaccine mandate. It's amazing how much shooting at one another in the Christian community is happening over COVID in all kinds of ways. And I believe God is grieved terribly by all of this. Um, I read someone uh, who just said not too long ago, stop using religion to fight COVID-19 vaccine. Taking it is the Christian thing to do. Now, others would say not taking it is a Christian thing to do. And like we argued last time, it is a Romans 14 issue. Be fully convinced in your own mind and allow other believers to be fully convinced in their own minds. If we cannot do that, then we're being divisive based on things that aren't centered around Christ. And we need to fight that as Christians because it's the air that we breathe. Remember, we're breathing this divisive air that has to do with doctrine, that has to do with politics, COVID, Another aspect of this is critical race theory. I've talked about this in the past. I'll talk about it again because it's so closely tied to identity politics in our country. There is no doubt that as Christians, we should be against any uh, form of racism, which the Bible calls prejudice and injustice. There's no doubt that we should be opposed to it. We should seek to address it. But if you look into exactly what is being taught in critical race theory, it actually argues for a different kind of racism. Because racism says, whatever your skin color is, this is what you're like. So if you say to black people or Asian people, this is what all of you are like simply because of your skin color. If you say to white people, this is what you're like simply because you're white. That is racist. And that does not unify us, in the church especially. That does not call us to center upon Christ. It calls us to look at our skin color 
and then assume certain things about us based on skin color, and that's wrong. And it's totally opposite of the civil rights movement earlier where Martin Luther King Jr. said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Critical race theory says judge them based on the color of their skin. That's wrong. And that is something that is hindering us as a church because it centers around group identity. It says there are oppressors and there are oppressed. And if you're in the oppressed group, it's based on color. If you're in the oppressor group, it's based on color. It's based on other things as well. And the whole idea is that we should live our lives based on the group we're a part of. And that should cause us to relate to the other groups in a certain way. And it automatically divides us. And so my encouragement is to be discerning. Pray that God would help us discern what's really going on in our country. Are the things that are being uh, talked about, the wisdom that's being heard through the media, uh, even from our government, Uh, even from various Christian leaders, is that the wisdom of God, as Paul describes it here, or is it the wisdom of the world? And are we subjecting ourselves and acting on God's wisdom as seen in the cross and our unity in Christ, or are we acting based on the world's wisdom? What does Paul say unifies us as Christians? Calvin would say the unity of the church depends on this one thing, that we all depend on Christ alone. So if you look through this passage again, you could say Paul is arguing the thing that unifies us is our head. Submission to Jesus as Lord. Over and over again, he mentions the Lord Jesus Christ or Jesus Christ, our Lord. Like he says in uh, verse two, um, where you, United with all who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. <clears throat> so the thing that unites us is we have the same head. We have the same Lord. We have the same king, the same master. And to be Lord means this is the person I submit to. This is the person I trust. I look to. I put all my hope in and I follow. I don't follow Peter. I don't follow Paul. I don't follow anybody but Jesus. And that means I follow his word. So our head unifies us, but also our hope. And that's when he talks about the message of the cross. What is our hope to be, quote, successful? It's that Jesus has fulfilled for us all that needs to be done. He's been successful. And he died for our lack of, quote, spiritual success. And he is the one who makes us acceptable to God. And therefore, if God accepts me because of Jesus and not because of my character or how great I am, then I should accept other Christians based on that same basis, based on our hope in Jesus and the cross. Then he goes on to say the other thing that unifies us, not only our head and our hope, but our humility, that we recognize that we're saved by grace alone, that we have nothing to commend ourselves before God, that it's not because I'm better than somebody else that I'm a part of the kingdom 
of God. And, and if we're not humble toward each other, then we will look toward the things that differ between us and it will divide us. The last thing I could say is at the heart of all of it is it's our heart that unites us. And this is what Calvin says about the last phrase in this passage in verse 31 where he says let him who boasts boast in the lord or let him who glories glory in the lord he says if therefore a man has his mind regulated in such a manner that claiming no merit to himself he desires that god alone be exalted if he rests with satisfaction on his grace and places his entire happiness in his fatherly love and, in short, is satisfied with God alone, that man truly glories in the Lord. He truly boasts in the Lord. He says the key to unity is boasting in the Lord, that I am what I am by God's grace. I'm looking to God for all that I need and all that I desire. I'm resting my full weight on what Jesus and Jesus alone has done for me. And I realize that I fall far short of the glory of God myself and that the people I live with in the church fall far short of the glory of God. And yet I'm called to love them just like God loves me. And that's what unifies us, is Jesus. And so my encouragement is for myself and for you, because I breathe the same air you breathe, we all breathe a divisive spirit. It's not just in our culture, it's in the church. And I do enough reading and listening to know just how divisive things are in the evangelical church in America. And what Paul says here is the key to true unity. It's the key to our own joy in Christ. And it's the key to continuing to be a testimony and a light to a lost world around us. If we are at odds, why should the world think that we have anything to offer if we're fighting among ourselves, they can fight among themselves. They don't need to join another organization to do more fighting. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is what we need. Your word is sufficient. Father, we, we live in challenging times. And as Mark said earlier, these times can cause us to be anxious and fearful. And they can also drive us to... Uh, be divided, to have a, a group identity of various kinds and to be at odds with other groups and other people and even to be that way in the church. Father, we should not be surprised if that happens in the world, but we should fight against it in your church, in the family of God. And so I pray that you'd help us all to see our own hearts and to see where we are drinking uh, and imbibing the, the very um, air that is around us in various ways that is so divisive right now. Father, it doesn't mean that there aren't real issues. It doesn't mean that there aren't legitimate uh, things to disagree on, even within the church and, and to address within the church. And yet we need to make sure that our allegiance is right and that our heart is right as we seek to address those legitimate concerns. So please help us in that respect. And we pray that for all of us here, every single one of us here, 
that we would truly look to you and you alone, Lord Jesus, for what we need and what we desire. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.